situational awareness. Um, some of us in this room have gone through some training with a man who talks a lot about situational awareness. And it's a color code thing that Lieutenant uh, Colonel Cooper uh, came up with. And what it is, uh, Jeff Cooper decided that you need to be aware of your surroundings. So he came up with this color code. White is basically oblivious. Condition white is you're just sort of sitting there, you're not paying attention, you're relaxed, you're unaware. Condition white is when you get out of your car and you go into Walmart and you aren't paying attention, you're looking at your phone, you're, not, you're in condition white. You're oblivious, you're relaxed, it's a dangerous way to live. Condition yellow is called relaxed alert. Relaxed alert. You're not paranoid, you're not freaking out, you're not playing you know, cops and robbers, spy or CIA guy. You're just, you're relaxed, but you're paying attention. You're paying attention to what you're paying attention to. You're looking as you walk. Where do you park at Walmart? Where do you park at Costco? Do you park under a light? Do you park away from all the cars? Don't park between two big vehicles. It's not paranoid. It's just wisdom. It's just saying, I'm going to pay attention. I want to be in condition yellow. Condition orange is when trouble's brewing. Condition orange is when you sense something is wrong. Uh, it, it's can sometimes be called the threat is identified. You may not know exactly what's going on, but something tells you in your gut, your stomach, your head, something's not right. Some people will get tunnel vision. Things, they'll, they'll go, it's something not right here. Condition orange, you need to be running the other way. You don't need to be engaged in some fight of some kind unless that's your training and that's your experience. And then condition red is the go mode. Adrenaline's dumping, you're in a fight. It's a problem. I can't think of a better understanding of the spiritual life then, as we finish this book, a little letter of Peter, understanding living in condition yellow, living in a relaxed alertness about your spiritual life. It's important to be smart when you go in places, and if you go somewhere in downtown Nashville, if you ever had that experience, you go, you're walking down, something's just not right. Follow your guts, guys. Follow your guts. Get out of there. Leave. Go somewhere else. It's not worth that little hesitation. Something's telling you something. Don't analyze it. Just go, go somewhere else. In the spiritual world, wouldn't that be important? To live in condition yellow. Relaxed alert. Am I growing as a man or woman of Christ? Am I growing to be more like Christ? As Christy talked about, how do we nourish this side of our body, the spiritual side, so to speak, of our lives? We want to be on guard. Second Peter, if I would put it in a sentence, would be to be on guard. That's what this chapter, is, this little book is all about, being on guard. And that's where we're going to land. What Peter, to review quickly what he talked about, a corruption of the world by lust, that we're in a world that's corrupted by lust, that it's ungodly, that we have to be diligent in our faith. We have to apply moral excellence. We need to use our brain, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, on he goes. That false prophets will arise, and I, I always stop at this word, among the people. The same admonition Paul gave the elders at Ephesus. Savage wolves will come from among your own midst. You don't always see them. Condition yellow, relaxed alert. You're looking for these problems. You're not paranoid. You're just paying attention. Uh, he continues about eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. What a good description of our culture. Eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. On he goes. And this book in, a, in its capsulation is... False teaching is going to be with you forever. You need to stay in condition yellow. False teaching is going to be around us and inside our camp, so to speak. And we need to be aware of it and be on guard. Let's conclude the chapter. 
and look at verses 14 and 16 and then 17 and 18. Therefore, beloved, why don't you read with me? Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you, as also in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, and which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. These dark, dangerous days, you and I want to pay attention to or paying attention to. There's four main verbs in this section. Be diligent, regard with patience, be on your guard, and grow. And we're going to look at those one at a time, broken in two sections. They're real easy to see. Be diligent, regard with patience, be on your guard, and grow in regards to Christ. So his exhortation is pretty strong, but its manner is very loving and tender as this pastor shepherd. So in verses 14 to 16, we have be diligent and be patient. Be diligent and be patient. Live in such a way that Christ finds you and me blameless. Live in such a way that Christ finds you and me blameless. Look for these things. Be diligent to be found by him. Diligent is the word that means to hurry up. It means to pick up your pace. When I was a boy, my father always gave my brother and me tasks to do. And if we were laggard about it, and he would have to call us out, you didn't mow the yard or whatever it was, he'd go, do it now or sooner, boy. It was always kind of one word the way he said it. Do it now or sooner, boy. And when I read the word diligent in Greek, I hear my dad going, do it now or sooner, boy. Uh, do we run to obedience? Are we as quick to run to sin, obedience, as we are to sin? Sin is easy. Sin is the backstroke. But am I willing to be diligent and quick, taking pains that can be translated sometimes? You're to be diligent to be found spotless. And of course, any of you who know your Bibles know that this is a reference to the Lamb of God. In 1 Peter 1.19, the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. James 1.27, keep yourself unstained by the world. So we have this diligent responsibility to live in such a way that we're blameless. Now, one writer put it this way. I like the question he asks. Do you have a deep feeling that we are soon to stand in the presence of a holy God, our final judge. We cannot but have a happy influence on this making us pure. If you and I are thinking about one day I'm going to see Christ, I'm going to be diligent, condition yellow, I'm pay attention, I'm going to keep myself blameless and unstained by the world, then I'm ready for him to come. And the passage continues with a lot of common sense. Invariably, we've all had the boss show up right when we took our break. I mean, three minutes before, we were sweating, working like crazy. We were busy, and they walk up, and now we're looking at our, you know, our Instagram on our computer or something. I mean, it, it, invariably, this minute you start you know, taking a little break, you get caught, right? You get busted. Now, I hope sometimes you get caught by the boss working too, right? That's our big hope. Um, the good news is Romans 8.1, we're justified by faith, period. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, period. But yet, we're still to live in such a way that Christ finds us blameless at his return. In the Greek text, and English translations sometimes smooth readings for us as English hearers, 
But the phrase in peace is at the end of the sentence, not the way it's tucked earlier in the verse in the English. I think Peter's point is to underscore, if you are living in a blameless fashion, if you're being diligent, running to obey, if you're trying to be blameless, we'll talk about that more in a moment, uh, you can be at peace. You're doing the right thing in the right way and you can rest. That, I believe, is what he's saying to us. Live in such a way that when Christ returns, you and I are found blameless. Secondly, we're to regard the patience of our Lord. That's a cumbersome phrase in the New American Standard. Regard the patience of our Lord. We talked in past weeks about the context of the Lord's return. That was one of the big heresies. Again, it seems a little disconnected from our view of life, but that was a heresy in the early church. When is Christ returning? He hasn't showed up. You said he was coming back soon. He didn't show up. That was a big issue for first century audiences. Not so much for you and me. So Peter was enjoining them, have patience. Have patience in this process. While we wait, others will come to faith. Um, I'm not sure um, how many, and I understand that Wayne pointed out all the physicians and those in the medical field last week, and we do so love and appreciate what you do, but I spent a lot of time in doctor's offices and, and seeing you know, clinicians and having exams and tests and MRs and x-rays and CTs and treatments and shots, and you know, that's my life. A lot of us are there. And you learn a lot about being a patient. The word is a double entendre. You've got to be patient to be a patient because you're going to wait in a waiting room. And it's called a waiting room for a reason. And you're called a patient for a reason, because you've got to be patient to sit in that waiting room. And whenever you go, invariably, my appointment was at 9, I got there at 8, I have an appointment in March, and I'll be there at least half an hour early. And I'll take a book, and I've learned it doesn't matter if it's late. It doesn't matter. I had to wait a month to get the appointment. I better be happy I got an appointment, and I better be ready to ask the right questions when I see this man or woman who's going to help me. Invariably, you get there. And maybe they're understaffed that day. Maybe they had a problem, uh, a case before you showed up that was a 15-minute window turning to be a half-an-hour window. Who knows? All kinds of things. Maybe it's a follow-up of surgery and things aren't going well and they're having to take more time with that patient. So seeing that waiting room with a different set of lenses going, hey, I'm, I'm, just, I'm not any more important than anybody in this room. Knowing that there are people back there that are trying to help and people that are getting help. That's a really good metaphor for the spiritual life. Can we look at the in-between health and wellness, in-between living and dying? I've buried my mom in recent weeks. Uh, Other friends have have buried parents in recent weeks. And uh, I have a great deal of empathy by these parents that say that they're ready to die. They want to go. They don't want to stay. And I ask myself, well, isn't there a purpose for your life still? And sometimes if I have a good enough relationship, I ask the person that question. I asked my mother that question for the past eight years. And she would tell me what her purposes were, and they weren't motivating her to get up with vim and vigor and go live an exciting life. She was wanting to die. I have great empathy for that. But in this waiting process between getting better or not getting better or waiting to die, uh, are we living in such a fashion that when he appears, he will find us blameless? I think we have a purpose no matter what our problem is. I visited a man this week who's dying of prostate cancer. He's in a, a hospital bed in his home, and he's got a pretty good attitude. But, you know, he'd rather not be dying. They'd rather not be losing him. He's about a month younger than me. I'm going, that's too young. 
So in this situation, another cheery Michael Easley sermon, uh, in this situation is how do we live in the in-between with diligence, with uh, eagerness to obey him, with this readiness, I'll run to obey, and in such a fashion that we are blameless without sin. We need to view God's program with patience, not according to our perspective. And that's so hard. Any of you have children or grandchildren and you take them on a, a drive in a car that's several hours, what do they say the moment they're in the car? How much longer? How much longer? Cindy used to have, she had these books and games she would give the kids and they could open them every 50 miles. And then it was, when's the 50 miles? When's the 50 miles? When's the 50 miles? She had this little thing with clothespins that went across the van, a little string, and it gave them a visual of how long they were going. That was a really bad game. That one didn't work at all. You know, so no matter what you give them, you're trying to distract them enough. You know, now you just put a phone in their hand and that, see how that works. Their brain's going to ooze out their ears, but otherwise it's fine. Uh, you're going, just enjoy the ride. You know, in, in our day, with all us old people, we looked for out-of-state license plates. We counted cows. We looked for church cross, you know, whatever it was to keep us busy for a while. You read a book, unless you were like one of my siblings who got car sick when they read. So, you know, you figure it all out. But as we become adults, we need patience with God's program. We're riding in his automobile. It's his plan. It's unfolding to his uh, design, not ours. And so you and I need a patient perspective toward him. Now, Apostle Peter refers to Paul here. And this is a big, deep uh, ravine, rabbit trail, whatever you want to call it. Just as also our brother, beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. Now, we don't have time to go down this rabbit hole. Those of you precept and BSF and community Bible studies and Bible study nerds like me, you've probably done these kind of things before. But the first question you ask is, what is he talking about? Is there something specifically he was talking about? Answer, we don't know. What we can do is go back and date these letters pretty accurately, most of them. There's a couple that are hard to date. But we know Paul's, uh, let's call it his youngest letter, would be uh, Galatians. And it was around A.D. 49. Peter's writing about, at it, it, it the latest, A.D. 67, 62, 64, 67. All of Paul's writing, except one outlier, are written 49 into the 60s. So these letters are circulating in what we would call Asia Minor today. So a letter was sent on a parchment, and it went from house church to house church, and they would share it that way. That's how the document got around. So, and, and they would recycle Let's just say there were 15 churches for, for you know, over a period of time, they would, they would trade that. If you have Jews who've come to Christ, they memorize stuff because most pious Jews had memorized vast portions of the Torah, of the Pentateuch, certain Psalms, because songs were easy to memorize. They were songs like we know the words to pretty easily. So they had a much better retention and memory than we give them credit for. But these provinces of Asia Minor would have included Galatia, Ephesus, uh, Colossae, maybe Thessalonica, uh, Rome, sure, certainly, and Corinth and others. So what Peter is doing here on a number, number of levels, he's referring to his brother Paul, who was also an apostle, much later apostle. Now, if you know the Bible story well, in Galatians 2, Paul and Peter have a huge conflict, massive conflict. And there's probably some, you know, Peter was probably stung pretty hard by Paul. And so now he's writing and he's calling him his beloved brother. And he says, Paul's written about this stuff. So what that does tell us is the audience of believers that Peter was writing to knew of the Apostle Paul's writing. What we're seeing is the formation of the New Testament church is, be, is being well-established. So much so they can talk about these kind of doctrines. 
Now, I love this verse when he says some of the th- things that Paul's writing are hard to understand. And we go, yes. Even Peter had a hard time with what Paul wrote. Um, we could say the same for some of Peter's writing. Because some of it is language transmission. Some of it's Greek to English. We've got to work through all that. Uh, but I love it at many levels. Um, if you've studied Galatians or Romans, just think about the prayers in Ephesians. If you're a Bible study nerd, you can spend hundreds of hours diagramming those things and seeing, aha, I never saw this. This is incredible. Oh, wow, this is unbelievable. And it's like a sinkhole. I meant to bring it. I have a commentary by one of my professors who's with the Lord now, uh, Dr. Harold Honer. Dr. Honer was nearly, uh, he was was a genius, but near photographic memory. Uh, He was over the New Testament Research Department. And if you were a New Testament PhD student, it was like going to see the Wizard of Oz to go see him. I mean, you were terrified. He was so smart. He was so brilliant. If you had to write an exegetical paper or a master's thesis or a PhD paper, you, just, you, got, you were sick for weeks before you went to see him. Now, he was a nice guy, but he was just stinking brilliant. He spent over 25 years writing one commentary on Ephesians. And that wasn't a back burner project. And this is before some of the sophisticated programs we have today. He had a a Greek New Testament that was what we call a wide margin of the Greek New Testament. And he color-coded it with colored pencils down to morphology and syntax and word repetition used by hand. I mean, he was, he was a genius. And uh, I read the introduction yesterday to remind myself of the story behind it. That's why I wanted to bring it and report part of it uh, to you. Um, but he t- tells in there how long the project was in a kind of a tongue-in-cheek way. And he explained some of the areas he felt like he didn't hit the bar, if you will. And I'm like, Basically, that was his magnum opus. He'd written many other books and commentaries, but this book on Ephesians, and what he does, the book is uh, 929 pages long, and he didn't include the complete bibliography because he said it would add 100 more pages to the book. Who wants to read 100 pages of bibliographic information, right? So he said, forgive me, but I'm just going to put the guy's name, you know, Bruce, page 44, and that's it. You're on your own. But he was a scholar scholar, and he dealt with the hottest, most difficult issues in the book of Ephesians, and, and brought it down from an academic to a, okay, this is how you would teach this if you were a pastor, Sunday school teacher, whatever. Brilliant man. Um, and I think of that going, this is how hard Paul is to understand. At the same time, notice what Peter continues to say. Uh, he's clear that Paul's writing were difficult, but then he goes on, which the untaught and unstable distort. There's some keys in there. The word untaught. You can learn. That's the good news. Paul learned. Peter learned. You and I can learn. This isn't as though, okay, this is quantum physics. You're not going to pass quantum physics. For me, it would be business statistics. I took one business stat course, and that changed my major from business to something else. I was done with business. It was like, okay, Jesus did not wire me this way. Paul was what we would call a Jewish legal scholar. Think of a legal scholar today. Now, he's legal in the sense of the law but it would be a very close association to the way case law is done today. And he would know these cases. And his training, his rabbinic training, he was a scholar. He was a genius. He was a legal Jewish scholar. It's also insightful and instructive that Peter, when he talks to his audience, we can learn some remain untaught, meaning you don't have to remain there. Uh, untaught is an interesting word. It's the word mathetes, means a dis- disciple. And there's just a little A prefix, ah, mathes. You're not a student. You're not a disciple. 
you're untaught in that structure. Uh, unstable in all his ways is found only here, and that's a person who doesn't keep sound doctrine. The untaught and the unstable are ignorant, and then therefore they distort or they twist the Scripture. So this is where false teaching becomes pretty easy to pick up on. It's pretty easy to identify if you're in condition yellow spiritually, that doesn't pass the smell test. Something this person is saying about the Bible or about God or about whatever doesn't quite pat you're not you're not you know, pulling a gun at orange and shooting somebody. You're just alert. You're just paying attention, going, something doesn't pass the smell test here with this person's teaching. Listen to D. Edmund Hebert. Someone asked me, is he always say Hebert? Uh, D. Edmund Hebert, H-I-E-B-E-R-T. Hebert wrote um, all the Pauline commentaries and a couple of outliers, but he, he was a, a brilliant Mennonite professor who lost his hearing in 1946. He was deaf, and he, because he uh, couldn't speak as well after you lose your hearing, he started writing. And the guy wrote these voluminous commentaries that are a lot easier to read than Harold Hunter's. And so uh, I love Dr. Hebert. I corresponded with him. I, I've shared this story before um, in the first church I served back when we wrote letters on typewriters. But uh, a dear man of God is with the Lord. But when you, when you hear me say Hebert, it's D. Edmund Hebert. And if you're a person who likes commentaries, anything with his name on it is worth putting on your shelf or on your computer. Listen to what he writes. A mind untrained and undisciplined in habits of thought lacking in the moral qualities of a balanced judgment. They're untrained and unrestrained in their interpretation of these scriptures, being ignorant of the fundamental principles of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is the way you approach the Bible. We all come with presuppositions. So the goal of hermeneutics is to start out with letting the Bible be the authority, not my presupposition. This is a key thing in studying the Bible. So you come to it and you know, my little cliche in context, what is this passage about? What's going on in the context it was written at the time it was written? I don't want to bring my, oh, I can rip that verse out of context and apply it to my life. Now, as I've shared with you many times before, um, one of my other professors said he wants to write a book called Misapplied Verses, God is Greatly Blessed. And I've seen a lot of people misapply verses and, you know, all is happy in the world. So there you go. But hermeneutics is studying from a, Think of like a set of filters. What's the context? When is it written? Who, what, where, how, why? You're digging down. Okay, if we're studying Petrine theology, Peter, first and Peter are going to help each other. We're also going to go back and look at Peter's life in the book of Acts or in the Gospels. And we're going to piece together. That's a hermeneutic. Words. How did Paul use a word? Really important how he used words in Romans. Now, what if we go outside and see how other New Testament writers use the word? And we start amalgamating. So you're, that's called a hermeneutic, a word study. You're being careful. Usage determines meaning, not what a dictionary says. Dictionaries are helpful, but they're not always right. I was, I'm, I'm going to be at Moody on Tuesday speaking at the Founders Week, and they asked me to speak on a passage on, uh, on a second, second Timothy chapter uh, 4, verses 15 and 16. And it's, it's a classic passage about the inerrancy and, and uh, all Scripture is God-breathed, theophanoustus, and inspiration. And in studying this passage, it's been remarkable to go back and dig down these words and go, these words don't mean what these dictionaries say. And I was uh, comparing, y'all know what a Collier's Encyclopedia is? How many of you know what Collier's? I'm not, I'm not trying to put you on the spot. It means you're old, uh, like me. 
Collier's was before World Book or Britannica or whatever. 1907, I think, was the copies that my father had on his shelf in our home. And the internet was the Collier's. So if he said, Dad, what is this? He'd go, go look at the encyclopedia, which we dreaded. We hated it. Collier's was written like six font. And it had Latin and German and Greek, like you didn't know how to read all this stuff, right? And then you would go at the index, the last volume, you'd start with the last volume, and you'd look up the subject, and you're chasing it around in 10 different volumes. And you, you, why'd I ever ask the question? You know, keep my mouth shut at dinner next time. But that was the internet. Go to the Collier's. Today, it's just click. And we Google it. So I was doing a comparison for an illustration for them. You get it firsthand. Uh, for, for where they are versus where we used to be when we studied. And I found the original, uh, it's easy to find, the original post about the beginning of Wikipedia. And they admit, unlike the Collier's, that says, we are the leading scholarly publication in the planet, basically. It's a very proud introduction. Wiki says, we're full of holes and a lot of errors. <laughs> Think of the comparison and contrast. Peter is saying in this long passage that Hebert's explaining to us, you can be untaught and you can learn. Let me go back to the quotation, all that from our hermeneutic left turn. They fail to see what one must interpret in a passage in harmony with context and the teaching of the book as a whole. Their misunderstanding is not due to Paul's faulty manner, but their faulty manner of reading. It's not that Paul's hard to understand. We'll acknowledge that. It's you got to do some homework. It's not going to come to you instantly. Peter also characterized them as unstable. Those whose habits are not fully trained and established, they lack spiritual stability and are thus unable to adhere to the moral demands of Christianity, which conflict with their inner desire for self-indulgence. And this is, this is part of a growing book Christian's life. We come to these forks in the road multiple times during our day, multiple times during our week, all through our lives. Am I going to take the easy path that is fun, it's sinful, it's slight, it's no big deal, it's not a huge deal, or am I going to take the other path and follow him? And that construct that we're not unstable, we're not untaught, we're willing to learn. So Peter says we're going to have difficult passages. He says passages do have a correct interpretation. Kind of a, oh, by the way, this verse also endorses that what Paul wrote was the Bible. It's what we call an implicit argument. The fact that Peter is citing what Paul wrote as sacred scripture, same as true in, in, uh, in 2 Timothy. When he refers to the scriptures, the audience that he's talking to didn't have these documents the way you and I have them. And that's what's so fantastic about it. They were a learned community. We think of the ancients sometimes, at least I tend to, as not real bright, not real smart. I think they probably outshone us far more than we understand because our technology does so much for us. I mean, if your washer or your car or anything breaks down, you don't know what to do. you got to call somebody. Years ago, you knew how to do all that, right? To their own destruction. Peter does not minimize. If you go down this path of distorting Scripture, if you're unstable in all your ways, if you're untaught, if you're misinterpreting and misapplying, it's to your own destruction. Ed Bloom reminds us, like Satan, the false teachers and their followers can quote Scripture out of context for their own purpose. Nathaniel Williams writes, in attempting to destroy the Bible, men destroy themselves. 
The word of God is going to stand. So first of all, be diligent and be patient. Secondly, be on guard and grow. Verses 17 and 18. Read with me again if you would be so kind. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Several weeks back, Wayne did an overview of Peter's life as we were going through the epistle. And you may remember he went back to John 21, at the, uh, it's the, it's the, the, where Peter is restored, called Peter's primacy. You remember he denies the Christ three times the rooster crows, he denies the Christ, and then he rest, he's restored. And three times Jesus asked him, Peter, do you love me? Tend my lamb. Peter, do you love me? Feed, uh, shepherd my sheep. P- Peter, do you love me? Tend my sheep. Three times he asked him this question. Um, it hurt Peter's feelings in that experience. You know I love you, Lord. But the threefold denial was matched by the threefold restating him or, or putting him back together, if you will. Um, keep in mind... Peter writing the word beloved. It's not part of his economy. Paul uses it a lot. Peter does it. And four times in the last part of this letter he has, and here, of course, is the ending one, therefore beloved, one more, we'll see in a second. Knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. We're back to yellow alert. Know it beforehand. Don't be surprised when these things happen. Don't be surprised when somebody gets a wonky idea theologically. Uh, It seems almost cliche some pastor starts something and it becomes a huge monstrosity and then he goes wonky. It seems to happen all the time. Some of my peer have gone that route. And so what happened to you? They got too far in a hole or something. I don't understand it all. But none of us are immune to it. Knowing beforehand, Peter says, be on your guard. Don't be surprised when this happens. Now, be on your guard simply means to take careful measures that you don't fall in a hole. Because unprincipled and lawless men are determined to confuse you. Verse, uh, second, this is Second Peter 2 going back to verse 13. We don't have a slide. They counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes. Boy, talk about politically incorrect. If you call someone, you're a stain today. You'd be smeared in social media for a month, right? You're a stain and a blemish. Revealing in their deceptions as they carouse with you. Having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls. So when a person goes down a path of sin, and maybe they've got some Christian language around it, they're some of the most difficult to deal with because they can sanctify their behavior. I got into a, a big embroglio with a student uh, that is LGBTQ, and he's out now saying that it's okay to have hookups, and the puritanical views of Christianity are wrong, and the Bible doesn't really teach this stuff. And so he's in an LGBTQ church, and uh, a small church with you know, a group that's all happy with that. And uh, he and I got in this thing on, on my In Context site, went back and forth, and it, it really blew up in both good and bad ways. But when you go down that path, you can't acknowledge you might be wrong. Because then you have to realize, oh, this is sin. And I'm not trying to pick a fight with anybody. But that's what the Scripture is teaching you and me. That's one of many illustrations. To be on guard. And Peter doesn't mince words. They carouse with you. Their eyes are full of adultery and never cease from sin. Enticing unstable souls. So people that don't have the stability and grounded nature of the Scripture, they go, well, you know, they're loving. They're nice. They love Jesus. They use all the right words. Oh, but there's this other part, this appendage. It's really wrong. I'm not saying you go out with a hammer and attack people. I'm saying you understand 
there's borders and fences and parameters, and I, I love you. I'm not angry at you. I disagree. I disagree with what you're saying, and I think it's wrong, and I think you need to come to terms with the word, not me. I love when they pick a fight with me because I go, what's this say? What's this say? Well, if it's unstable and unprincipled and distorting, then you fill in the blanks. You can do whatever you want. Peter wrote, and fall from your own steadfastness. Um, we're going to be challenged by all sorts of people. We've talked about this illustration before about three-point climbing. If you're a rock climber, you keep three fixtures at all time, your feet and hand, or both feet, both hands and the foot. You never make a move if you don't have a three-point connection to the rock. Uh, the, the things that are protecting you are not there really for you to fall on. They're there if you mess up. It's like, the, it's like a Hail Mary, so to speak. <laughs> if nothing else works, maybe that rope will stop me. Climbing a rope and, and carabiners and cracking ups and all the things, you wedges you put in a rock, they're there to protect you when you make a mistake. They're not to help you climb. Climbing is done by a three-point movement. Both feet, you reach with one hand. You get a really firm grip, then you let go of one of the other appendages, move. Okay, now i got these two, now I can move the foot. I mean, that's what climbing is about. I think of those illustrations to help me are you steadfast in your view of Scripture? You don't take a leap like Tom Cruise on some mountain free climbing. That's all green screen, by the way. Be on guard so that you're not carried away. It's the military nuance. Be on guard. Guard up. Be ready for it. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Be on guard against false teachers and grow in Christ. Let me give you three lessons. We're going to... Skip the one slide, Michelle. Let's just go to the three lessons. Uh, wrap up the book. Number one, three lessons for you. Uh, are you discerning? If you and I are going to be on guard, yellow, condition yellow, are you discerning? Peter's warning again and again about false teachers, health and wealth, prosperity gospel, uh, visions, dreams, mystical things that people say, I had a dream about you, and the Lord told me to tell you that. Well, I'm not saying he couldn't use that. I'm just saying stay in condition yellow. Don't let someone else tell you what God is telling you about your life. I mean, we have a community of people to help us and, and give us wise counsel. But just because I've had people come, I had a dream about you, and the Lord told me to tell you this. I'm like, I didn't get that dream. I appreciate you sharing it, but I didn't have a dream that dream. It's more like a nightmare than a dream. Um, secondly, are you growing? Are you discerning? Are you growing? Sanctification is a spiritual process where you and I are becoming more and more like Jesus Christ and less and less like our sinful selves. Are you growing? The way to be on guard, these are conditioned yellow. Discern and are you growing? Uh, Christy did a fabulous job trying to explain a very hard concept. We grow physically by food, nutrition, sleep, rest, so forth and so on. You water the weeds, they grow. But when it comes to spiritual growth, it's a little bit of a head scratcher. God's word, God's spirit, God's people. That's my answer. You might have a better one. I don't think you can grow apart from God's word, God's spirit, and God's people. And I think we need all three. Because I can't do this as a lone ranger. The word community is so overused, but there's a good, important part of community. You can't do the Christian life alone. God's word is our foundation. It's the truth. It's the one standard bearer. God's spirit, who indwells each believer, is your permanent roommate to help you discern. Think about when you had that gut feeling about someone, you meet them and go, I don't know, something's rotten with that. There's some hesitation. Think about that as the way the Holy Spirit, not that he does, it's the way the Holy Spirit is helping you and me discern things spiritually. 
I'm not sure that's what that says. I'm not really sure what that means. Good. <clears throat> Do your homework. Um, Michael Green says, the Christian life has been said is like riding a bicycle. Unless you keep moving, you fall off. And I think sanctification is growing all of your life. The most dangerous thing us older saints can get into is sitting on our laurels because we know so much. We've been in Bible churches and Bible study and BSF for 27 years, and we've led groups, and we've taught, and we've memorized, and we read, we read all the classics. We read all C.S. Lewis, all his Chafer, whatever it was, all Francis Chan. We know them all, and you get sedentary. It's so easy, and we can get smug spiritually. Lastly, are you glorifying Christ? To be on guard is to be discerning, to be growing, and are you glorifying Christ? This, again, is a challenge. Um, I think the Christian movement across the, the country, I say the Western churches, America, has become horizontal. I've talked about this many times. It's a self-focused Christianity. I, me, my. What God does for me, my vision, my job, my business, my children, my family, my, 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 my. And that, it's been a subtle shift, but it seems almost like it's now indelible. That's the way Christians are living their life, horizontally. And we're asking God to bless and we're praying about things. We're doing a lot of things right, but it's all about our life, not about glorifying Christ. And the doxology that Peter ends with, to him be the glory, both now and forever, until the day of eternity, amen. The self-help groups have changed, let me suggest, to a self-success group. How I am successful in my business, in my social media platform, in fill in the blank. I don't think I've ever met as many people in Middle Tennessee who have their own business. It's fascinating how people have their own business. That's, That's great. That means you own it. That means you get to work 18 to 20 hours a day. It means you get to pay yourself when you have money. If something goes bad, you blame yourself. That's what owning your own business means, right? But that's the culture. And I'm not, I think it's great people have that courage to try something. It's wonderful. It's, it's laudable. But how do I keep that from being my life? To the point that I'm just praying for God to make this thing work, as opposed to am I glorifying God? The, the Reformers had this great expression about do all you do to the glory of God. Eat and drink to the glory of God. And when I'm with some of our arch reform friends and we pray, I mean, I, I was just in D.C. a couple weeks ago, and a guy prayed, we're going to eat this meal of the glory of God. And at first I thought, that's kind of smacky. And then I thought, actually, that's a really good reminder. We're enjoying this experience to the glory of God. And it's okay to enjoy things in life to the glory of God. But trying to get that vertical fixation. For me, there's two things that are eternal. And I don't, I don't pretend to tell you how to do this because I don't know exactly either. But I think one of the ways we glorify Christ is by weighing in on things eternal. And for me, people and the word of God are the only two eternal things we have. Everything else will burn. Everything else will perish. Our accomplishments, our legacies, everything is going to be gone. But people are eternal, and God's Word is eternal. So if I'm spending time with God's Word and God's people and people that don't yet know Him, I think you're putting your fulcrum, your, your, your leverage to things that are eternal. And I think those glorify God. The other thing I ask myself is, Michael, if God does this, does He get the credit or do you get the, the, the credit? If it works out, and thank you, Lord, it wouldn't have happened without you. That's glorifying God. Thanks, I got that sale, I got that job, I got, you know, we finally got pregnant, we finally got the adoption, whatever it is, and we're horizontal again. It's a fine balance. I'm not trying to be hard on you because I have the same. How do I glorify God in what I'm doing? You can be a pastor and not glorify God. 
frankly, it's pretty easy to do. You can do it in the flesh. You can do your job in the flesh too. So how do you glorify God? 